When Dennis and Barbara Rainey took some of their children and grandchildren to visit Israel, they were intentional about what they hoped it would accomplish. Here's Barbara. We prayed a lot for um, this trip, a lot for each of our kids and for our grandchildren to really catch a vision for the reality and the truth of Jesus and his life and what he taught. That was our vision, that was our dream, it was our prayer. We'll hear more about the Rainey family field trip like none other today. Shortly after their trip, Dennis and Barbara sat down to reflect on a few of the highlights from their time. We heard part one last time on this podcast, but as they say, but wait, there's more. Now let's hear part two of this adventure. Here's Dennis. And welcome to the Dennis and Barbara Rainey podcast from thereinies.org. My bride here of uh, 50 years is uh, with us. Yeah, we're all here together again. We're here together, no doubt about it. The Still over, all here. over jet lag from uh, going to Israel a couple of weeks ago. And this is really some of our best efforts to pass on the command in Deuteronomy 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And it goes on to say, What I'm commanding you today, you shall teach of your children when you rise up, when you lie down, when you go by the way. And there's actually a word in there that indicates passing on the truth about God and the truth of God should be a burden every day to your soul to pass that on to your children and grandchildren. Which is what we hoped to do when we took our kids to Israel. Years ago, we Dennis and I started talking about this idea, not knowing if we would be able to pull it off, not knowing, you know, just not knowing if it would work. And we had that desire to take our kids to the land that Christ walked, uh, the land that He taught from, the 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 place that God chose out of all the places on the planet for His name to dwell and for His presence to dwell with His mm-hmm. people. And there's something about it that we just felt like if we could do this, it would be not just memorable, but it would be hopefully both life-changing and heart-changing for our kids and our grandkids. So we were finally able to do that in March. And last episode, we talked about some of the things that we did and saw and some of the experiences we shared together. And we have more to tell, so we're going to do that on today's episode, too. On our way to Jerusalem, um, we stopped at what I considered the riskiest part of our journey, a botanical gardens that was a biblical garden that contained the trees, the vegetation, the flowers that are mentioned in Scripture. And that sounds kind of sounds out there a ways, but that ended up being a highlight of our trip. Well, you weren't the only one who was anxious about that. I think the parents of our grandkids, our kids— uh, saw that on the schedule for the day and thought, oh, this sounds like this could be really boring. But it was anything but boring. And we were quite surprised to find out at the end of the week when we had everyone share some of their highlights that four or five of the kids shared that as their highlight of the whole week. And as we pulled into this place, it wasn't impressive to look at. It just was a bunch of acres of trees and bushes and things. I mean, there wasn't really anything to see. All of us were skeptical. All of us had questions. But as we got into it, we had a guide who was 
A plus, and the guide makes all the difference in the world in any kind of tour that you do. But she was energetic. She was a mom. She talked to the kids, and she told us about this park that had been created. I think it was after the Six Day War. Don't yes. you think? Isn't that right? Yes. And they bought, I don't know how many, a couple hundred acres of land, and they decided that they were going to plant everything that was mentioned in the Bible and allow people to see the way people lived in the Bible and what they used and why these plants and trees and things are mentioned in Scripture. And so she did her little introduction, and it was so cute. I'll never forget this moment. She did her little introduction in this real small, tiny little amphitheater place, and we were looking out over the hills, and the kids were sitting there just kind of twiddling their thumbs, and I'm sure they were thinking, oh, this is going to be boring. And then she said, all right, let's go look at things. And she walked out of the amphitheater, and she said, all right, kids, I want to show you something. And she picked this, looked like a stalk of grass, and she picked it up and kind of waved it in front of them, and she said, this is, and I don't remember now what it was, but she said, this is such and such. And she said, it's called this. And she said, the Israelites ate it, and she stuck it in her mouth and started chewing on this piece of grass. She said, it tastes really good. She said, here, would you like to try one? Well, immediately, the kids were hooked. And they were all bending over and picking up a piece of that and chewing on it. And it was the cutest thing, but it was also so fun and gratifying to see the kids engage with what she was saying. It wasn't just a lecture. It wasn't just facts. It wasn't just more things to learn. It was it was a way to participate in, in the stories of Scripture. So we walked on a little ways further, and then she stopped and bent over and picked another leaf, another stem off of another plant. This one had yellow blooms on it, and she started talking about this mustard plant and how Jesus used that as an illustration in one of his parables. And she said, you can eat the mustard plant, too. And she started chewing on a stem from the mustard plant, and she showed us the seeds and said, you can eat the seeds. And she talked about how she gathered them, and she made her own mustard. And so the kids were eagerly chewing on another plant. And, you know, they're not all city kids in the sense of being completely unfamiliar with anything rural, but they don't go out in their yard and pick grass and chew on it either. And so it was a totally out-of-the-box experience for the kids to um, pick things that were growing and eat them and begin to understand that the stories that Jesus told were connected with the land and connected with the vegetation for a reason. And the reason is because this was the way the people lived. They went out into the field and they picked these things and they cooked with them. And so for him to talk about the mustard seed they were really tiny. We we all looked at them. We all saw them on the plant. We all chewed on some mustard seed. And it, it just gave life to the stories of the Bible for our kids and for our grandkids, and even for us, for that matter, to see it, to touch it, to smell it, to taste it. Um, it, it made the stories of Scripture come alive. And I've got a question for our listeners that I want them to think about and answer, and I'll come back at the end of the broadcast and answer it. But what are the three most important trees in the Bible? I gave this assignment uh, to our grandkids, and I was really impressed with how they searched the Scriptures mm -hmm. and found the three most important trees. So it really is more important than you think. There are all kinds of ways God shows up, and He shows up through creation, mm -hmm. and nothing is insignificant. We also went to the Sea of Galilee, and you and I had been back in 2011, and while we were out there on the Sea of Galilee on this 
tour boat that had about 30, 40 people on it, a storm came up. And the Sea of Galilee is really surrounded by by hills and mountains. It's it's I think it's below sea level. It is below sea level. Uh, yeah. But it can pick pick up some ferocious winds and it pushed our boat into another tour boat that was I don't know riding waves or four feet high and yeah. and uh, it could have been dangerous what we were out there. This time when we went it was perfectly mm-hmm. calm. And I thought that is what Jesus did that night when he showed up in the disciples' lives and they were terrified. And he said a word, and the sea was calmed. And he was trying to calm their souls as well. And I thought, you know, these are ways these kids are, they're going to grasp the stories of Scripture in specific ways with vivid memories that are etched in their minds. And uh, I hope as they face issues in their lives, they'll apply Scripture and uh, trust Jesus and have faith in Him in the midst of the storm. And I agree with you. That was our hope. That was our vision. That was our dream. It was our prayer. We prayed a lot for um, this trip, a lot for each of our kids and for our grandchildren to really catch a vision for the reality and the truth of Jesus and His life and what He taught. So I think, yes, being on the Sea of Galilee, it was one of the highlights for some of the other grandkids. They said, sitting on that boat— and seeing the water that Jesus saw and the hills that he saw and just that experience of of riding out there on the sea was was a highlight for some of them they just they loved it because it was it is virtually unchanged from when Jesus was there especially sitting in the boat because you don't see the modern buildings you just see the hills and you see the pasture land and so um it was a great experience one of the fun things that uh I did. I'm Papa. When Papa goes and visits the grandkids, uh, it's just really interesting. No matter if it's in Colorado with the with the snow on the mountains and, and around the houses that we go visit, or in Nashville, or in Russellville, or in Dallas, uh, or wherever our kids are at the time, I say, "Do you hear them? They're coming. They're coming out of the woods." And I will have gone into their rooms and have lined up gummy bears, whole lines and herds of gummy bears in their rooms. And I said, I think they, I think they visited your, uh, your bedroom. Run back there and look. Of course, this has been done a number of times. Right. They know where gummy bears come they, from. They know where gummy bears come from. That, <laughs> but they love it. But they, they love it. Even and the so, big kids love it. If you can believe it, the gummy bears crawled out of the Sea of Galilee. When we were going to look at the Sea of Galilee, I went and put gummy bears, this time not lined up, but in packages on, yes. the, on the bus, little spots. And uh, uh, they got back and it was a hoot. They said, how did you get those on here? And I said, I checked a bag that weighed a whole lot more because of it, because I had three pounds of gummy bears. And and how many pounds of jelly beans? Five pounds of jelly bellies. And we just had fun uh, with that. And and they showed up again at the end, I think somewhere somewhere in in Jerusalem. I don't don't remember remember the spot. But, uh, you know, the point is is to make a memory with your kids and at the same time etch uh, the biblical principles that— Uh, are found in Scripture on the souls of your children. 
Well, Dennis and Barbara have more to tell us in just a moment, including talking about a meal that was particularly special to Barbara. And Dennis will answer his question about the three trees in the Bible. Don't forget to be thinking about that. But I'm jumping in here to quickly let you know how you can access photos from this trip and other content from Barbara. It's by subscribing to Barbara's Friends and Family blog. It's just $5 a month, and you can do that at barbarainey.substack.com. That's barbarainey.substack.com. Once you've set your profile, you can browse lots of great content from Barbara, including that Friends and Family blog with pictures from their trip to Israel. And don't forget, too, there are still a few copies left of Barbara's epic poem, A Love Letter to the Lost in This Land. It's a poetic overview of the whole story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And you can order yours for a donation of $10 or more when you visit everthinehome.com slash loveletter. I want to say thanks to all of you who read our blogs. Uh, now our son's writing a few of them. Samuel, great response to his his blogs dealing with some thorny issues. Uh, we've got hundreds of thousands, in fact, millions of people who are reading these blogs in over 50 countries around the world. And you're making possible a ministry that is impacting, I think, not only homes today, but legacies tomorrow. Thank you for your giving that makes that possible. Barbara and I don't take anything from the rainies.org. Uh, we raise our own support to work here, but we need cash to be able to create and to host these uh, blogs and podcasts. We've got a very small team. It's lean. It's not mean, but it is <laughs> lean and it is uh, hardworking to serve you with the very best resources we can bring you to help you be effective in life's most important relationships. That's God, your spouse, and your kids and grandkids. Again, you can access that content at everthinehome.com, therainies.org, and barbarainey.substack.com. Now let's continue with Dennis and Barbara. And you're, you may be sitting there listening to this and saying, you know, that's all well and good that you and Barbara uh, could afford to take your kids and that they could afford to take the, the grandkids to, to Israel. Uh, we may never be able to achieve that. Well, we'd saved a long time to make yeah, that happen. Mm -hmm. But we did some cheaper things here in the States that have been real memory makers mm -hmm. with our grandkids. Yeah, I think what we're saying is, is that there are ways that you can help the Bible come alive for your kids beyond just taking them to church on Sunday, beyond teaching them to read it. Um, I think talking about your faith, I think talking about what God is doing in your life, mm -hmm. telling your children and your grandchildren how He showed up, things that He did with genuine excitement, because when He does that, it's amazing when God shows up in your life. But there are also practical things you can do. And one of the things we did, which we've mentioned before in a previous podcast, but I think it's worth mentioning again, and that is we took our grandkids, a bunch of our grandkids, to the Creation Museum in northern Kentucky. It's called Cincinnati area, but um, the Creation Museum, which is really, really well done. And now the Creation Museum uh, creators have also built an ark, a life-size replica of Noah's ark. And it was just amazing to take our kids and grandkids to that. They loved it. They were as wide-eyed over that as they were over Israel because, it, it again, it's another way 
to help your children engage with the Bible stories that help them see that this really happened. This isn't just a fairy tale, but it really actually happened. And it do, it just does a lot for their faith to see the things that are replicas of what really happened. It's almost like a theme park. They've got zip lines and that kind of stuff. So taking your kids to that uh, would be a great investment in your kids' faith and in your in your family. At its core, it's biblical. Very. And biblical, and what yeah. we had fun doing was teaching our grandkids to think biblically about life. Mm-hmm. Popular terminology for this is called a biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. Looking at everything through the eyes of Scripture results in it in life making sense when it's odd and when it's perplexing. God's at work and. Uh, I wanted our grandkids, and you did too, to have a a biblical worldview of life that they're living out all their days because I have no idea what's going to come their way in their lifetime. Uh, There's also another great museum in Washington, D.C. called the Museum of the Bible. Mm -hmm. We have not done that. That'll be our next stop that we make. I don't know exactly how we're going to do that with all the grandkids having to fly to D.C., but these theme parks, and I'll call them that, they're worth the investment of time mm-hmm. and vacation money because you're going to go with a purpose and come out of there with uh, a lot of lessons. You can take your kids to Disneyland. We did that, and we're glad we did it. We only did it once, but we did it. And yet, in the long run, especially for us as grandparents, at this season of our life, it's more important for us that we would spend our time and our energy imparting our spiritual values to our kids. Yeah, not just entertaining them. Right. Well, um, you thought I forgot about it, but I didn't forget. Have you found the three trees? Have you thought about what the three trees are in the Bible? Well, one shows up in Genesis 2. That's probably the one you got. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, that tree ended up getting Adam and Eve. Uh, Their choice caused them to sin against God. But the tree story doesn't end there. It goes all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it says in Scripture, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And it was speaking of capital punishment that was around in that day, and our, our Savior's death. It was forecast in prophecy. The last one is probably the lesser known of the three trees, but it's in uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 14. And it's really kind of cool because it takes the sin that entered the human race of the first tree uh, and the second tree, the cross that Jesus had to die on, and it wraps it up at the end of history with this statement, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Those gates are going to be in Jerusalem. And uh, that's where the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is going to be. Give your kids and grandkids the assignment of finding the trees in the Bible. You may have to teach them how to use a concordance. Or a Bible app, uh, which is what our grandkids did. They they pulled up their phones. They all had Bible apps, but they, they knew how to use them, and they found a whole bunch of trees. They found lots of trees before they finally narrowed it down to the three most important ones. But it was a great it was a great little exercise for them. Yeah. There was a time when God showed up in your life 
on this trip as we had our last dinner in uh, in Jerusalem, and and we ate at a place that had something very special for you. So our last night, instead of going to the hotel and eating basically the same thing we'd been eating all week, our tour company arranged for us to eat at this really nice, very old hotel, very vintage hotel in the heart of Jerusalem called the American Colony Hotel. And I don't know enough about it yet. I took lots of pictures, and I'm eager to um, make the time to actually learn more about this place and why it's called that, because it's got a lot of history to it. But I didn't know any of that when we walked in. I just thought it was a really cool place. Just the architecture, it, it said this has been here for a long time. So we went into the dining room. We had a really nice dinner with our children and grandkids. And then right at the very end, and we were sitting at the table with our guide, and he said, oh, by the way, on your way out of here, you might want to stop in the lobby and see some things that are hanging on the wall. He said one of them is the original handwritten It Is Well With My Soul song written by Horatio Spafford. And I looked at him, and my eyes went like saucers, and I said, what are you—say that again? Are you— are you serious? And he said, yeah, the original handwritten words to that song are framed and hanging in the wall. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, they just are. You'll have to go see. Anyway, he was quite the character. And um, so as soon as we were finished eating, I was up and out of my chair and into the lobby. Well, the lobby area was covered with frames all up and down the hallway. And I hadn't even noticed him when we came in, but sure enough, there was a big frame and there was a piece of hotel stationery. And on that stationery were handwritten all the stanzas for It Is Well With My Soul. I just couldn't believe it. That's one of your favorite songs. It's my favorite hymn. It was my dad's favorite hymn. We sang it at his funeral. We sang it at my mom's. And uh, someday I hope we'll sing it at mine. But yeah. I, I just love that hymn. I love the story behind it. Um, Horatio Spafford was a businessman in Chicago in the late 1800s, and he was married, and he and his wife had four daughters, and he was a very strong believer. He worked closely with Dwight L. Moody in Chicago, and he and his wife and daughters were going to travel to England, and they were going to join him on a uh, speaking campaign around the country. And at the last minute, Something happened that he had to stay back in Chicago, something with his business that was pressing, it was important, and it demanded his attention. And he said to his wife, you and the girls go on, and I will come on the next ship. I've got to take care of this matter. And so he uh, took his wife and his daughters to the departure station, and they got on the ship and sailed across the Atlantic. And not far from the shores of England, in the middle of the night, when everybody on the ship was sleeping, the ship that they were traveling on crashed into another ship in the dark of night. And the wreck was so damaging to the boat that it sank in a matter of minutes. I think it was 12 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. And all four of Horatio's daughters drowned. His wife lived. She was saved because a plank of wood from the ship um, was nearby, and somehow she got on top of it. And in the morning light, someone found her floating on this piece of wood in the ocean. When she got back on another ship and got to shore, she sent Horatio a telegram, and it said, all lost, saved, alone. And that was all that it said to him. Mm. And he knew immediately what had happened, and um, 
and as soon as he could, he got on another ship and, and sailed to England. And on his way to England, over the spot where the wreck had taken place and the ship had sunk with his daughters in it, he stood out on the deck of the ship and standing there uh, praying and probably crying and mourning and grieving over his lost daughters, the words came to him for this hymn, and he, he wrote them down as a poem. I don't think he intended for it to be sung immediately, but um, he wrote down his reflections in poem form. And those are the words that we sing today to this hymn, and they were written in that, on that piece of paper and hanging in that, in that restaurant, that hotel where we had dinner that night. So seeing that in his own hand, in, in framed in that restaurant, was really meaningful because, uh, I don't know, it just it's like being in the land of Israel uh, and feeling connected to Jesus. Seeing that, that piece of paper with his handwriting on it that he wrote on that ship, mm-hmm. uh, there was a greater connection to him and to the hymn even than there had been before. And I'll not read all six stanzas, but I'm going to read the the opening stanza and the refrain and then the final stanza. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. The last stanza says, and I love this. I just, the, I know, the visual of this, uh, I get emotional when I read it and when I sing it. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Amen. Amen. Amen.